Welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Good to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America. And today, Father Stephen, as usual, I want to return to another father of the church, a very early one, um, Irenaeus, someone that we've been going over in our uh, in my uh, history of Christianity uh, graduate classes lately. Um, so let's have you I- introduce uh, Irenaeus. He's he's he he comes along pretty early, right? Right in the second century, he's born uh, like about one forty. Um, he actually, it's really interesting because he actually comes from Asia Minor and he ends up in France. Uh, you know, we think of Lyon, uh, was actually, you, you say, how does that happen? You might not know this, yeah. but actually, uh, that part of France had a, had a Marseille, for example, the modern French city of Marseille is actually a Greek city, Marsilia. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, part of the Greek settlement, the Greek diaspora. Yeah. And so there were a lot of Asians, you know, Greek speakers and things who lived in the, the Rhone Valley there. Okay. The, the city of Lugdunum, which becomes Lyon. Okay. So, you know, Irenaeus is, comes from Lyon, which was the, the chief city, okay. you know, at the time there. So he's from Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Right. right? And, and he actually heard sermons from Polycarp. Uh, that was a really big deal. He makes a big deal, as we're going to talk about, about the role of the church. But he says, look, I actually, when I was a kid, he said, you re-, and he said, I love this, he says, you remember things you hear as a kid. He said, you really remember his experiences as a child in this very special way. He said, I remember hearing uh, Polycarp. And remember, Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John. Well, yeah. yeah. So that was really, we're going to talk about some of his thought and things later. A big thing to him about this connection, how do we know what the real faith is, is, gee, knowing the real people. Yeah, and yeah. he's saying, "I see this connection. I actually, when I was a kid, I actually heard Polycarp. Yeah. I knew him. I heard him as a kid. It really stays with me. And this okay. is a guy who knew, who studied under the Apostle John himself, the one who was with Jesus. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, so so he comes from uh, from uh, from Asia Minor. Yeah. So that's an impactful experience. For yeah. Him. And he, we know uh, this that he, you know, he moves into the Rhone Valley there. Uh, we know that in 155 AD, you know, that he was definitely present at Rome at the time of the death of Polycarp. Mm-hmm. You know, we have record there. In 177, he's uh, sent on a mission to Rome on behalf of the church at um, uh, at Lyon, and it was a very fortunate uh, mission for him. He was sent there to the church, and while he was gone, a persecution broke out. Mm. They killed a lot of Christians there, so he happened to have the good luck, like somebody missing the Titanic. Oh, wow. He had the yeah. good luck to be out of town when it happened. Oh, wow. Bishop Athinus and a number of, of, of Christians there were horribly, you know, it was a, it was a bad a persecution, like a pogrom type yeah. of thing. He got back, he replaces Pathinus, and he becomes the bishop of the key city. This is, you know, the, the primate, primacy, uh, the primate, the first bishop, mm. you know, of, of Gaul. So he succeeds him. And we see him again in 190 uh, A.D., he goes to Rome. His name, it's sort of interesting. His name, Irenaeus, comes from Irene, which is the Greek word for peace. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like the peacemaker. Right. And as it was pointed out, like by Eusebius, the great church historian, no one was ever a better named than that. I mean, this guy really was a peacemaker. Mm, mm. There was an argument over the Easter controversy. Yeah. And, you know, Pope Victor was going to excommunicate, you know, going to say, I'm not going to have to consider myself in communion with churches who keep the, you know, who, um, who don't observe Easter as we do. Yeah. And he came down and said, whoa, time out. This and isn't, actually, yeah, <laughs> this isn't maybe so serious. An yes, issue he said this that. is not really the, the uh, no. We don't really need to do that. They, they have a very ancient tradition. We should live and let live. Yeah. So Eusebius, you know, sort of cheers him and said, "Wow, this guy really, <laughs> this guy lived up to his name. He's a peacemaker." peacemaker. Yeah. Uh, we don't know. After that, he sort of falls out of sight. 
Uh, all we know is it's a much later tradition, Jerome, uh, who's talking to us that maybe he was martyred, but we don't know that. So he appears in the calendar as a martyr based on Jerome, but we have no actual information on, on okay. how he does. Okay. So maybe maybe was martyred, maybe not. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So so what's 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 Irenaeus is rem- remembered for? What's what's wow. his important contribution? Well, some people I think this is not exaggerating it describe him as the founder of Christian theology. Mm. That's mm. a pretty big thing. Wow, the That's, founder. Yeah. <laughs> but here's he made why. a real cottage industry. It turns out. <laughs> yeah. But it's because he's really the first to formulate in dogmatic terms the entire scope of Christian doctrine. So what do you mean by dogmatic? What what, what does that mean? Well, maybe a better way to put it is uh, simply saying here are all the key elements elements of faith, the essential elements of the faith and how they interrelate to one another. So dogma, okay. dogma the essential teachings of the faith okay. and how they relate to one, how they fit into the system, how they all fit together. Okay. So he's the, the, the first that we know to kind of formulate these and write them. Systematically this yeah. way. Okay. People talk about individual issues and things, but here he basically tries to give an overall picture. So why does he, why does he do that? What's the, what's the occasion for, for him deciding this needs to happen? Well, one of the first challenges the church faced was false teaching, uh, a, whole sc- a whole slew of false teachings that today we call no- uh, the Gnostics. Mm. Uh, Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. Yeah. And they claim to have a special secret esoteric knowledge. Now, this is a broad category that's a modern church uses for a whole bunch of different types of schools, but mm. they had certain things in common. But they all believed, and there's a certain secret esoteric knowledge that sounded a whole lot like certain types of Greek philosophy. Right, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, so this is kind of like an umbrella term for a lot of different teachers and movements right. and people who are kind of trying to... And what are the, what are the Gnostics after here? Well, one of the things that's um, this emphasis on... And by the way, we see elements of this in the New Testament. John is already dealing when he says, who's the Antichrist, but he who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, etc. Okay. Is they had... In, in Greek philosophy, there was a lot of resistance to the idea that God, who's unchangeable and perfect in things, could have somehow be connected with stuff, ma- the material world. Uh-huh. It seems so unworthy. It was changeable. It was disgusting in their view. You know, yeah. Pure and holy means spiritual, yeah. the soul, the body. Remember the turn off the resurrection of the body was in, in, in Athens when Paul talked about it? Right, he's really, preaching a sermon. They're just tracking, and then he mentions the resurrection of the dead, and people start laughing. They, they oh, cut gee. him off, don't they? They cut him off. <laughs> no, enough. You know, this is like space aliens, as far as they were concerned. Sure, sure. So their idea is the whole notion of God was inherently spiritual to the exclusion of the material. Mm, Matter of mm-hmm. fact, some of these Gnostics tried to argue that the God of the old, the, the creator of the world, uh, couldn't be the real God. Mm, mm. It was some demiurge, maybe even evil, sort of Manichaean sometimes. Okay, that the real God couldn't have anything to do with matter. Okay, yeah, so, that, so that the God of the Old Testament is some kind of, like, Lovecraft kind of demiurge, like Cthulhu or something like that. Right, as opposed to the yeah. spiritual father of Christ. And also the whole thing about Jesus dying on a cross, that messiness, oh, for people who don't like matter. And so one of the uh, popular ideas with Gnostics was that, you know, uh, Jesus is this guy sort of walking around minding his own business, mm-hmm. and what happens is that his baptism... You know, the, the, the logos comes upon him. This, yeah. You know, the spiritual word of God uses him sort of like as a vehicle to yeah. get around. And, of course, you can't die. That would be unworthy. And so he sort of departs from it just before he's crucified. I see. I see. By the way, if you want to know where that idea has been kept, it's in Islam. Really? Yes, in Islam, they argue Jesus wasn't crucified. Uh, they don't deny the crucifixion, but it was somebody else. Oh, interesting. It probably comes from uh, some of the people that um, in the Arabian Peninsula, some of the, quote, Christian tribes were Gnostic Christians. 
I see. Kind so of it probably came from an understanding of uh, that's kind of filtered that idea into. Okay, I see. I see. Okay, so we got these Gnostics uh, running around, and happily for them, I should mention one last thing is. Yeah. Here's the thing is, is so what's, where does salvation comes in? What does Christ who says he doesn't die for us? And that kind of thing, the physical thing doesn't work, is basically is they, they call them the perfect. The perfect where people had the spark of this perfection that got trapped in matter. Okay. So think of that. It's like gold trapped in mud. You know, this, this spark of divine when, when this physical world was created got trapped in matter. Oh, I but see. But if you, if, you, if you get the right knowledge, the right teachings, you sort of go back to where you, can you were. You kind of return. Find your way home. Return to the ether from which you came. The pleroma, right? That sounds there. really similar to kind of like Scientology a little bit, right? Like the... the, the Bad other... ideas never go away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, they never go away like roaches after uh, I, yeah. after, after an atomic bomb. They I mean, they will thrive. Just kind of get reincarnated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, so we've got these we've got these Gnostics, these kind of false teachers. And so, if it sounds if I'm if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like they're taking uh, from the Jewish scriptures the kind of terms and and from Jesus Christ, you know, terms and 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 they're kind of redefining the cosmology and where they fit. Right. Right. And they here's how the argument comes though is. First of all, they don't have much use for the Jewish scriptures. Okay. And they, uh, but they, th- their teachings are obviously incompatible with what we know. So they mm-hmm. have to be very mm-hmm. selective in New Testament writings. So right. here's how they go about doing it. They're saying, you know, they're saying, Alex, if we were to, if I were an Gnostic talking to you, say, Alex, you know how sometimes the apostles, how Jesus would take the apostles aside and, uh, you know, teach them on privately. And yeah, things. yeah. And you know how sometimes they really got things wrong while they were, and they only understood later on? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, we have their secret teachings. Oh. You know, we have access to the special teachings that were just for the apostles that somehow got lost in the, you know, the others. Okay. So we have the rest of the story. Here's the real story. Oh, okay. So that's that gnosis, that secret knowledge. The secret knowledge. Okay. This is the knowledge. So you know, there are elements. You can see elements of it, but a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there. Every time it contradicts them, of course, yeah. which the scriptures do. That's, oh, no, that's the misunderstandings and things. But the, the, when Jesus was off talking to his inner circle, yeah. <laughs> here's what he told them. Here's what he told them. And we, all had ta- we, need, we had the tape recorder on, so and, to speak. And all and all you need to have access to them is we need your credit card number, right? No, so. there's, there's no reason to believe that the, there's no reason to believe that they were dishonest. Okay. That they were clear, clearly um, highly yeah. influenced by philosophy around them. I see. I see. Okay, so so Irenaeus is is clarifying the the faith yeah. against these teachings, right? Right, and we have two uh, works by him. We think the the famous one. If we commonly call it, uh, you know, um, uh, against the heresies is the uh, is the common term for uh, versus heresies, but you know, but actually the real title I love. You can't. These titles are like those nineteenth century novel titles or eighteenth century novels. Yeah. Detection and overthrow of the pretended but false no- gnosis. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's a great title. <laughs> but he says, you know, it's the false, falsely so called. You know, the, the, d- the knowledge falsely so called. It's I not see. real knowledge. It calls itself. It's fa- the knowledge falsely so called. The det- Detection and overthrow. That sounds like a spy novel or something. Well, actually, what it is, is it's actually, uh, it has to do with, it's a hunting metaphor. He actually works Hmm. on it in the book. Here's the hunting metaphor. Very often, hunting, not just for sport, is very often he compares it like with a village or something. You'd have wild animals that would cause damage. Like you'd have boars and things would actually live out in in a a woods near you. And they'd come in and cause damage, kill animals or even kids and things. Mm -hmm. He said, what do you do when you have some wild animal? He said, first of all, often in the woods. 
you know, these thickets and things. He says, what you want to do is you first of all want to find out where it is. You got to detect it. Yeah. Just to make sure, whoa, it's dangerous in there. Well, you find out. Then what you have to do is expose it. You have to sort of uncover it, get it out into the open. Because if you get it out into the open, then you can attack it. Okay. So he's kind of trying to smoke these teachers If you don't smoke out, them out, yeah. mixing metaphors here. Yeah is you're playing on their field. You want yeah. to get them on your field, so you have to get them out. They, they love being hidden. I see. It's to the animal's advantage. If you just go into the, you're going to get attacked. If okay. you go into a woods and you don't see where they're going to attack you and kill you. Okay. So what you have to do is you have to get them out of their comfort zone. You have to expose them, find out where they are, and get them to come out and show where they really are. Now that they're exposed, now... Now we can get them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. So, so it is kind of exciting. So they talk about their secret knowledge. His point is, be let's look at. It. You know, they won't tell anybody the knowledge. They will sort of hint at it, but they won't tell you. Mm-hmm. Let's find out what it really is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then once we do that, then we can deal with it. Fa- fascinating. Okay, got it. So detection and overthrow of the pretended, uh, but false. False Gnosis. Right. What, what's this book look like? What's the structure here? It's a large book. Uh, it's uh, interesting. What we have, uh, first of all, is the, the first book. There are five books. The first book is about detection. Okay? Mm-hmm. Everything about finding it out uh, is in first book. And what, this is how we get some of our best information about what they believed. Mm-hmm. Because by definition, they didn't want to tell us. Right, right. And so here it's a sort of, uh, think of like the secrets of the Freemasons or something like in a certain time. is There's supposed to be secrets. So let me ask you a question, because this is something we've been going over in my, my grad courses, as I've said. And one of the things that sometimes point out, pointed out is that how do we know whether Irenaeus's picture of the Gnostics is accurate because he's clearly someone who's trying to refute them. So how do we know that he's not kind of misrepresenting what they're saying in order to polemically write against them. No, that's a really good question because we know that uh, some of the the pagan writers who wrote against Christianity had a very fault, like we were into cannibalism because they misunderstood mm-hmm. them. That's a very good point. And uh, the, real, the real reason we know now is we had a discovery um, of the, something called the Nag Hammadi Library. And so basically the Nag Hammadi was, was Gnostic writings. Uh-huh. A lot of when we actually found the, the writings among themselves. Okay. And it's a pretty fair portrait. Okay. So, so uh, okay. And actually, this is good because he wasn't trying to do the chief thing of creating a straw man. Mm-hmm. He really thought, he believed it when he said, show the real thing. I'm going to explain in book two how that works. He said, don't, don't tell the truth about it. Just get the real thing out in its best form. And then shoot at that, and that's the best way to. The to best take way care to get it. you know don't uh, don't get, get it halfway in the bushes. Get it out there. Okay. Okay. And so that's what brings us to book two. In book two, what he does is he explains each of these systems, and his his argument is basically is overthrowing it based on reason. He says, "Look, um, this stuff's inconsistent. Doesn't make sense." Hmm. Hmm. You know, sort of. We have something in, in courts. So that's what an indictment is in a court. Is you go to the court, and before you even have a trial, you have to say, "Hey, is there?" probable causes have to move forward with the trial. And sometimes what will happen is if a case isn't very sound, the, the judge will throw it out. They'll call it summary judgment. Yeah. The judge is saying, look, from the stuff you brought to me, if this is your case, yeah. <laughs> we don't need a trial. There's no case here. Yeah. There's no case here. Even if everything you said is true, but this is, it doesn't make any, you wouldn't be wouldn't enough to prove up. it. Yeah. They call that summary judgment. So his basic thing is get it all out there. And he says, look, it's inconsistent. Read the stuff. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. Hmm. Then he goes with book three through five. And book three says, look, let's look at the real... This is the most important book to us, by the way. If you're going to read one thing here, this is the one to read is book three. Book three, okay. Because he basically says, what's the real knowledge? You know, sometimes 
I love this. You know, sometimes in philosophy they'll say, they, they used to love to say that a truth is uniform, falsehood is, is manifold. What it means is, here's what I mean. If we said, where are Alex and Stephen right now? There's only one true answer. Mm-hmm. We're at the Cathedral Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois, right? There are infinite wrong answers, yeah. <laughs> right? We could say they're downtown Chicago, they're Paris, they're Pluto. London, yeah. Yeah, planet Pluto, right? So f- error is infinite, yeah. you know, but truth is singular, mm. Mm. is one of the signs of truth. And so his basic point is, so let's actually tell what the actual truth is. We've now told why they're inconsistent. Let's actually have out the full scope. This is where he, he, he does his thing as sort of the first formal theologian. Yeah, yeah. Let's tell what the real story is about Jesus, what he did. Okay. Then in book four, he talks more uh, about exegetics, about refuting based on sayings of Jesus himself. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about some of their scripture exegesis. And finally, he talks about refutation based on the resurrection of the flesh, saying the uh, the Christian hope and how that fits in with their systems. So book three is the the best, and that's really the heartland. Got it, got it. He did write another book called Demonstration of the Apostolic Teaching. And it's a positive apology for the faith. You know, part one talks about here's essentially what the faith is, and then has proof prophecies from the Old Testament we talked about, like with Justin. Okay. One interesting thing I just wanted to tell our listeners might be fun is, you know, with these ancient things, originally all we had for Irenaeus was, for the full thing, we had some quotes like in Eusebius and things in Greek. It was written in Greek. Uh-huh. But we, we didn't have, have the this, whole book. We had this Latin translation. Okay. But the real blessing is, this guy was a terrible translator. So what, okay. what I mean, why was that a blessing? Because he did it very, in a very wooden way. He translated literally word for word. Oh, so we can reconstruct. We can do it backward. We can Greek. reverse engineer the Greek. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Now you yeah. say, well, how do we know that? Uh-huh. I don't want you to say that. Yeah, aggressive. how do we know that, Stephen? I'm glad you asked that question, Alex. <laughs> how we know it is this. Since then, we found a lot more fragments of other people quoting. Actually, uh-huh. we found enough Greek fragments to basically reconstruct the entire Greek text. Uh-huh. And guess what? It ties it to the Latin. Okay. I mean, this guy nice. was really bad. I mean, so what he did is basically pulling out his Spanish dictionary. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and did it. So, but it's, uh, so we're, we were very confident with our, with our text. Nice, nice. Okay, great. So, um, okay, so, so let's talk about Irenaeus' theology. What is, what is he, what is, what's his main... Um, what's his main themes that, that he returns to? Well, the first thing is, where should we look for the truth? I mean, their point was saying, hey, there are these super secret esoteric teachings and yeah, things. He yeah. said, time out. He said, let's think about this. He said one thing. He said, you know, the entire church around the world, you know, the, uh, the church is founded by the apostles. He said, it's like the sun. It shines all over the world, but it's the same sunlight everywhere. Mm-hmm. He said, the, the, the true teaching is like the sun. Yeah, He said, how come, look at the church. The church is around the world. It's in all these different countries, languages, but all the churches founded by the apostles share a common faith, which isn't yours. How did everybody get it wrong? And he yeah. said, these are the churches. And he said, the important thing, he said, you said these people got these secret teachings were the apostles. Well, we know these churches were founded by the apostles. And all of them agree on this teaching, which is contradictory. They're saying the God of the Old Testament is the father of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. the creator. Mm-hmm. That them is the facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he's saying it, and he. Um, so he's saying, and also let, he took one church in particular. He took the Roman church. He said, "Here's a why." He said, "Was basically look. We know Peter and Paul were both there." He said, "We we know the complete line of succession. We know these people, and yet 
their teachings are the teachings we find in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. They're exactly what we read in the books of the New Testament. So sure. don't argue there's some secret teachings. If you want to know where safety is found, safety is staying close to what everybody believes in the church. The church is founded by the apostles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, he's, so there's no evidence for some kind of secret teaching no. here. We know these people. We know the churches they founded. Yeah, and with the people who supposedly got this teaching, that's, we know what they taught, and it's not what you're teaching. Yeah, yeah. Then the second thing, what are they teaching? And this is really where it's powerful gets us. This, this, the theology is, is recapitulation, hmm. is what they call it. And that's basically like redo. Think about it this way. Adam is tempted, and what happens? He caves. Right. So Christ does everything. Like Christ is the new Adam, right? He's the second Adam, Paul tells us. He goes through the same temptation, but he's successful, right? He, he says yes to God. Adam says no to God. Jesus says yes. The man, you know, that, so basically... Christ basically redoes everything we did wrong. Yeah, yeah. Think about like Israel in the desert. You know, in your Israel in the desert, you know, they demand, you know, bread. Mm. Right? They do, and then they murmur against God. Yeah. Jesus in the desert, he doesn't demand bread. And when the devil suggests it, hey, why don't you make bread? He refuses. So basically Jesus is in, you know, t- just takes everything where we fouled up. Yeah. And makes it right. You know, that's called recapitulation. Mm. So he's saying basically, you know, sin wreck things and Christ as a human being went and set everything right everything he touches changes uh, his I, a common thing is he said basically Christ had to had to assume whatever he's going to redeem he had to be a real human being or he couldn't redeem humanity okay yeah you know, he had to be a real human being as opposed to the Gnostics where it's, well, this is Logos is sort of sitting at a person no, no, if he weren't a real human being he wouldn't be a new Adam, so it wouldn't work. It has to be sure, the sure. same thing. So yeah. he, that's a recapitulation. It had to be. He had to assume and what he, what he redeemed. Yeah. So he emphasizes the humanity of Christ, his divinity and his humanity. It's both. And so, so that which is not assumed is not, not redeemed. It's right? not redeemed. Okay. You probably heard, heard that a lot in theology. Right. Is, uh, that comes from Irenaeus. You know, but what's not assumed isn't redeemed. Mm-hmm. Is, is that. Also, it's interesting. In talking about this, we indirectly have our first actual reference to infant baptism. Really? He says Christ is sanctified every age. And in the context that he says a baptized, he specifically mentions newborns. Ah, yeah. He actually mentions okay. newborns in that. So kind it's actually the first historical reference I see. to infant baptism, not just saying children. We could argue about how age of faith. He mentions, you know, literally newborns. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. mentions. And he, again, argued about the need for God to be truly God. Jesus had to be both God and both man because he himself embodies reconciliation. Mm. Mm. He himself is the reconciliation we all go into. So yeah. that's how you say he has to be both. So he's emphasized the Gnostics say, no, no, there's this. Don't confuse the man, Jesus, with this logos. He said, no, no, they are, they are the, they're saying they're absolutely yeah, yeah. To tie together. It's truly God, truly man. He in himself is that perfect reconciliation sure. of the divine and the human. The man, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really rich bedrock for a very familiar oh, yes. theme that, that we hear over and over again, that Jesus has redeemed mankind by becoming man. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. One thing that's interesting, he uh, talks just as Christ is the, uh, is the second Adam, is Eve, basically, is the second Eve. Not in the sense she saves us. Sorry, you said Mary is the second Eve? Mary, rather. Okay, sorry, yeah, uh, yeah. I said Eve, no, Mary is the second Eve, excuse mm-hmm. me. So uh, he's saying in a, in a role, just as, you know, uh, Eve said, you know, says no to God, you know, Mary says yes, not in a salvific way. Mm-hmm. And you might ask, this is an Irenaeus, but, you know, why would the difference be? Is the reason, you know, Christ had to become a human being to die and to do these things. Mm-hmm. But if he were just a human being, it wouldn't do any good. 
Yeah, yeah. What gives power to his death? A lot of human beings die. Uh-huh. What gives power to his death is he's not just human. Yeah. He's also God. He's divine. Another thing is, remember um, we talked about that Malachi quote, talking about everywhere a perfect offering will be. We've talked about in the con- in the context of Justin Martyr, for example. Uh-huh. Uh, that comes up again here. Uh, the Malachi prophecy saying that our Eucharist is an example of that. Uh, you know, when we uh, that our remembrance of Christ's once and for all sacrifice is that perfect offering. It's throughout the world now in the Eucharist. Everywhere the Eucharist is celebrated, that prophecy is being fulfilled. Right. So this is in this, this is in Malachi. One one eleven, right? So f- yes. from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. So that so what's Irenaeus saying about that? Well, he's saying, like Justin Martyr, is that this prophecy had been fulfilled in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Is that now all the nations now around the world? God was being honored, the prayers of the saints, the incense rising before him, but also the pure offering was, uh, you know, his description of the Eucharist. Okay. okay. was this pure offering. And since our, our remembrance of the one-time death and resurrection of Christ is now being celebrated, remembered, you know, throughout the world every time we have Eucharist, is fulfilling that prophecy. The okay. Malachi's prophecy was about the church. Got it. Got it. Now, again, we saw that with Justin Martyr. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, another thing is he talked about the, he's very strong on the real presence in the Eucharist mm-hmm. because he said, uh, but it's interesting, he's the one, remember there was a debate in the, in the church between it, you know, what's the key moment in our Eucharistic prayer? Is it when we say, this is my body, you know, the, the words of institution? Mm-hmm. Or it, that was the Western church's view. Okay. And in the Eastern church where we say, send your spirit upon these gifts to make them for us. Yeah, but yeah. He actually is one of the basis for the, uh, in the Eastern church can cite Irenaeus as mentioning, he sees this is the key moment. Is the epic. He mentions the you know the calling down okay. as being key in this context. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But one thing that's really uh, really neat about um, about Irenaeus here is that he talks about you know we we have a, a, a in theology talk about that God has one action a common operation. Mm-hmm. There are three persons: one God. Through remember on the Trinity when our broadcast on the Trinity. There are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they're all doing the same thing. But they all differently. But every everything they do, they do is a common Together. operation. Yeah. They do it differently as Father, as Son, and Holy Spirit. But they're all in a common operation. Right. So when he talks about the creation, he says, well, God, the Father, is the creator. But you have to understand uh, that, that the Logos and the Holy Spirit were his hands. Mm-hmm. So he talks about them as being the two hands of God. Interesting, yeah. Because okay. they were all at creation, right? The, the, the God creates everything through the, his word. Yeah. But the Spirit is hovering over creation. So he's saying, you know, so here's a beautiful example, you know, that from the very beginning, he said that's why God said, let us make man. He said he's yeah. speaking to the Holy Spirit. So you know, some to, foundations for Trinitarian. Yes, let us yeah. make man in our image and likeness. He's speaking to the Logos and to the Spirit. Right. His right and left hands. Yeah, yeah. Of yeah. creation. Yeah, oh, that's really that's really fascinating. One of the things, though, in most practical terms in art that we've all seen, you can't go into a church and not see this in, in, in any sort of uh, liturgical tradition in, mm-hmm. in the West, is we see these signs of the evangelists, right? Hmm. And we think like the, the angel for St. Matthew, a lion for St. Mark, 
yeah. you know, the eagle for for um, uh, for John, and we think of the ox for Luke. Oh, see, that's probably something new to uh, to to most of us. That's that's pretty new to me. Yeah. Well, if you look at like any of the churches in Europe and things, almost inevitably you will find these signs because the signs of the four four evangelists. Oh, okay. They yeah. have, and where that came from is who got the ideas. Remember in Ezekiel, then it's taken up again in Revelations four, the division of those four living living creatures with the four faces on them. Right, and, yeah. the, and the eight, the faces are a man an eagle, an ox, and a lion. lion. And he was the one who said, you know, they represent the four evangelists. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. And so that's, we've taken that from him. The one difference though, is that we change what his association is, which one is which a little bit. I see. Let me tell you what he said they were and what we say now. Okay. Uh, He said, Matthew is, uh, what is the man. Remember one of the four faces, the face of a man. Because he emphasizes the humanity of Christ, the gener- he begins with Christ's incarnation, the, the, book, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yeah. So he says that's why it's good, and he also emphasizes the gospel with Jesus as being meek and humble of hearts. Humble of hearts. So he said that's why it's really a good sign of Matthew's gospel. And he said Mark is like a flying eagle because he, we see the gift of the Spirit coming upon his church because it opens up mm. with the set of the Holy Spirit at Christ's baptism. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And as Luke of the ox, as he said, well, remember, that's uh, oxen. We think of the priesthood sacrifices. And so we begin Luke's, uh, Luke's gospel with Zechariah, right, right, in, the, in, right the te- the in the temple. Yeah. And finally, uh, when we have John, the, he had the lion because we see this, uh, this, the power and preeminence of the Son of God. Uh, now, I later see. on, we turn those around. Mark because it has the lion. Okay. And we use John for the eagle because we say John is like this eagle flying. You know, when you look in the Gospels, he's like in a whole different place. He's looking at the theological and the... Right. He's taking a bird's eye view in a way. Interesting. But the idea of doing this comes from Irenaeus. He was the first one and it really caught fire. Okay. So whenever... Again, if you go to any any church in the... the, uh, Any... Roman Catholic Church or traditional church in Europe. I mean, yeah. you'll you'll see them often in Protestant churches, like Lutheran churches and things. These are the classic signs of the evangelist. The the faces of the living creatures. An angel, right? An angel, yeah. right? The angel for Matthew, the lion for a Mark. That's why you have the lion as a symbol of the city of Venice. Remember, their their patron is Saint Mark. Oh, oh, Saint, okay. San Marco yeah. is the is the cathedral in Venice, so the great uh, church there. I see. Uh, then Luke is the ox, and then the eagle for John. Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, the wow. traditional signs in the Western Church. Fascinating, fascinating. One other thing I got to tell you is, you know, sometimes people are most famous for a quote, sometimes real, sometimes not. Right, right. For Irenaeus, there's no question that there's one quote he's best known for in modern times, mm-hmm. and that quote is. Uh, for the glory of God is man alive, and the life of man is the vision of God. Mm. And normally we just get a part of that, and we get it translated this way. The glory of God is man fully alive. You I have heard, heard that. I've yeah, heard that you a can't lot. not hear that. <laughs> and often it's used to celebrate, you know, like almost like a humanistic thing, you know, the, this, this glory. But actually, I think the full quote is interesting. Let's go through the full quote and see what he's really saying. Sure. He says, for the glory of God is man alive, and the life of man is the vision of God. If already the revelation of God in creation has given life to all beings that live on the earth, how much more does the manifestation of the Father through the Word procure life to those who see God? Hmm. So he's saying, he said, look, you know, if just this, remember in the beginning of the book of Romans, he talks about this general revelation. He says what's true about God is plain in creation. 
Yeah. You know, we can see, you know, in God's goodness and his power in creation. Uh-huh. He said, if that was good enough indirectly for all this life, imagine to actually see God himself. And he's saying, yeah. in Christ, we can see him. Mm, the vision. He said, so he said, the, you know, the, he says, so I love you saying the, the, the glory of God is man alive. And what makes us alive? The life of man is the vision of God. Uh-huh. And he, so, so he says, Christ is the one who makes us fully alive because uh-huh. in Christ we see God. Yeah. That's what the message is about. It's not glorifying my saying. We can become what we were always meant to be thanks mm-hmm. to when we see. It's sort of like my favorite verse in the New Testament quite literally as you know is is second corinthians 318 where it says beholding his image we're being we're being changed into that image transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another Uh, yeah so that's basically this idea so the the glory of god is man fully alive in christ and and he says and he says the life of man he said what does it mean to be fully alive the life of man is the vision of god yeah and then later on the paragraph he says the manifestation of the father through the word that's what is who procure life for those who see him oh wow that's that's amazing he says god's glory is man being alive and the one thing that really make us alive is seeing god and we see him when we see jesus right right wow so man we get so much amazing truth from Irenaeus but but let me let me ask you something um so Irenaeus is he's he's an early he's an early father he's not one of the apostles do we does does is is he get anything wrong or, or something that the the church later um corrects him on yeah there are two things okay that, um, that, uh, <laughs> we're gonna, we nobody's don't. perfect no <laughs> He was Irenaeus, not Perfectus. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But uh, the first is uh, he was a, a millennialist. And what would that mean? Uh, believing very much in the uh, thousand-year reign of Christ, etc. Okay. Uh, which the the broader church did not come to 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 accept. You know, the, okay. the, the thousand-year physical reign of Christ on earth. Uh, the biggest thing, though, the biggest, the real problem that itself is not the problematic one is more the beatific vision. When do we see God? Mm. And he didn't believe we saw God until the final resurrection. Okay. But the church has come to believe that what happens after Christ's death, like the harrowing of hell, is that we're always alive, you know, in God. But that what happened, the harrowing of hell, is we actually get to see his vision. We're joined to our resurrection. We be all, immediately on our death, we see God. Mm-hmm. This vision that makes us happy. We're yeah. with the Lord. That's why Paul says he's eager for that to happen. He says, it's really tough. I can be with the Lord. Right. Because we'd have that vision. Uh, but that we, so we, the, the church has come to believe that we have that vision of God when we die. Okay. The Lord. We have that vision then. We said the fullness of our salvation is when we can join that with our actual resurrection bodies, being yeah. everything we were meant to be. He felt we didn't have the beatific vision until the resurrection. I see. I see. Okay. Well, I guess not everyone can get absolutely everything right. <laughs> I'd love to have his record. Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. That's all the time we have left for this episode. And thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back in two weeks for more on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. <laughs>